Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. After all of Stephen Russell's devious schemes and dramatic jailbreaks, he ended up in the last place one would think to look for him, Restful Acres Care Center. While in prison, Russell had been diagnosed with AIDS, and by all appearances, the disease had progressed into the final stages. Russell was a shell of his former self. The man who once robbed companies blind and plotted grand getaways, now passed his days in a tiny infirmary bed as life slowly drained from his emaciated body. He no longer walked or spoke, his silver tongue, it seemed, had withered away with the rest of him. He could barely muster enough energy to write letters to his beloved Philip Morris. Throughout his life, Russell's charm and intelligence had opened many doors that were meant to remain firmly shut. Now, he stood at the final exit, on the threshold of the great beyond. Stephen Russell was poised to pull off his greatest escape, but he had no intention of dying. Not for a while, at least, and certainly not without Philip Morris at his side. Russell's last con, his pièce de résistance, would be to cheat death itself. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on Stephen Russell, a man whose ingenious financial grifts were only topped by his audacious jailbreaks. 
Last week, we learned about Russell's early criminal endeavors, including identity theft, insurance fraud, and embezzlement. This week, we'll hear how Russell fell into a deep, obsessive love with Philip Morris, a love that motivated him to embezzle hundreds of thousands of dollars and to become the most prolific prison escapee in American history. Stephen Russell and Philip Morris had a meet-cute straight out of a movie. Morris was in the jail library struggling to reach a law book on a high shelf when Russell stepped in and retrieved it for him. A damsel in distress meant a knight in shining armor, and that, as they say, was that. Russell felt an instant connection with Morris. There was something about him, perhaps his petite frame or his boyish blue eyes, that made it seem like he needed protection. And quite suddenly, Russell wanted to do just that. They fell into a flirtatious banter as they traded stories about how they'd found themselves in lockup. Russell was facing a three-year sentence for insurance fraud, while Morris had kept a rental car for too long and was serving four years for theft of service. However, Texas prisons were so overcrowded that it was likely they'd both be out in a matter of months. Russell had escaped from Harris County Jail before, and he was confident that he could do it again. But suddenly, he decided he'd rather stay. The thrill of escaping hardly compared to the buzz Russell felt around Philip Morris. He figured he could bear a few months in jail if it allowed him to build a strong foundation for a life on the outside with Morris. So, like Russell had done many times before, he got to work making the improbable a reality. First, Russell pulled some strings and was assigned as Morris's cellmate. In those extremely close quarters, the two men fell in love, beginning a romance that would last for years. Russell knew he wanted to provide for Morris, anything he wanted. When Morris despaired over his legal troubles, Russell promised to cover his attorney fees. And when Morris complained that he couldn't get any sleep because a fellow inmate screamed all night, Russell paid someone to beat up the screecher just so Morris could have some peace and quiet. Morris was a nervous wreck in jail and cried nearly every day. Russell was a godsend. With his prior knowledge of the facility and unshakable confidence, he soothed Morris's bawling and kept him safe in a very dangerous place. The intense stress of being behind bars gave their relationship high stakes. There is evidence to suggest that a heightened state of anxiety can contribute to more intense attraction. In a 2003 study, psychologists Cindy Meston and Penny Froelich found that people who had just gotten off a roller coaster rated photographed individuals as more attractive than those who hadn't. Basically, residual excitement from the ride intensified participants' later experience of attraction. In their tiny cell, Russell and Morris were about as far from an amusement park as they could be. However, prison did provide plenty of emotional twists, turns, and sudden drops. Their harrowing shared experience might have intensified their feelings toward one another. 
Their jailhouse love affair continued for 10 months, even after they were assigned to separate units. Then, in October 1995, Russell was released on parole. This should have been a happy occasion, but Russell was devastated to leave Morris behind. Morris still had two months left to serve. Russell planned to provide a life of luxury for himself and Morris. But for the time being, he may do working menial jobs in Houston. This had the dual benefits of keeping his parole officer off his back and allowing him to stay close enough to visit Morris in jail. However, he soon came up with a much more satisfactory arrangement. Russell masqueraded as Morris's attorney, Stephen Russo, Esquire. This ploy allowed Russell to have unlimited visitation time with his client, and Russell took the ruse even further. Acting as a lawyer, he called Morris's parole officer and got his release date moved up a full month. Russell and the newly freed Morris settled in Houston, where Russell began preparing for his next hustle. His plan was to secure and exploit a high-paying job in the medical insurance industry. He'd landed lucrative gigs before with only minor deception, but this time, he upped the ante. Russell put a classified in the paper, advertising just the kind of job he was looking for. Hundreds of people applied to Russell's position, but unfortunately for them, the job didn't actually exist. Resumes poured in, and Russell took pieces from the best ones to cobble together an impeccable CV for himself. Then, he set up two phone answering services with different area codes. Whenever someone called the numbers, they were told they'd reached a major insurance company and asked to leave a message. Russell would then return the calls, giving himself rave reviews in a disguised voice. Russell also spent hours at the public library researching health maintenance organizations, or HMOs, so that he could be convincing in an interview. Within a few months, Russell was fluent in insurance industry jargon. His rehearsal process was complete. He was ready for his first performance. In January 1996, 38-year-old Russell applied to a CFO position for North American Medical Management, a Fortune 500 company that interfaced between insurance companies and doctors. After all his preparation, Russell aced his interview with a board of the company's top executives. A few weeks later, he got the gig. Russell was earning a very respectable $85,000 salary, almost $140,000 today. But as soon as he reported to work, he began looking for ways to skim off the top. North American Medical Management, or NAM, received about $22 million every month from insurance companies, which they held for 7 to 10 days before distributing to doctors. Russell was thrilled when he discovered that the company had never thought to invest the $22 million while they held it. This seemed to him like an easy way to turn a profit. Russell quickly went rogue and set up a new investment account for NAM. Every month, Russell bought stocks with $22 million from the company's account, then sold them after seven days. 
Nam was quite pleased with the extra $150,000 income that Russell generated each week. But, unbeknownst to them, Russell was pocketing 50% of the profits off the top. With the hundreds of thousands that he embezzled from Nam, Russell was finally able to lavish Philip Morris with the over-the-top opulence he'd wanted since they first met. Their new life was a far cry from the tiny cell they shared in Harris County Jail. Russell bought a massive house in Houston. They spent tens of thousands remodeling it to Morris's specifications. He bought a $20,000 Cartier watch and matching Rolexes for himself and Morris. They even got his and his Mercedes-Benzes, each with a price tag around $100,000. Russell spared no expense. Really, Nam was picking up the tab. They just didn't know it. Yet, for over a year, no one suspected that he was siphoning off company funds. However, in April 1996, Russell made a critical error. Russell applied for a loan at Texas Commerce Bank, the same institution that handled Nam's accounts. Before approving the loan, TCB went over Russell's statements. They noticed that he had a suspiciously large sum in his account. In comparing Russell's account to Nam's, the bank realized that Russell had funneled away roughly $850,000 from the company into his personal accounts. They notified Nam immediately. The next Monday, when Russell came into work, he instantly realized something was off. The company's CEO, Jeff Rothenberger, was in the office, which was unusual. Russell strolled past the CEO's office a few times and realized he was on the phone with Texas Commerce Bank. Russell grew concerned that something had gone very wrong, but he kept his cool as he ambled back to his office, packed up a few items, and shredded some documents. Then, on his way out, he slipped into the CEO's office and stole Rothenberger's briefcase. Russell walked out the door of Nam, never to return. When Russell broke into Rothenberger's briefcase, his worst fears were confirmed. The CEO had a meeting set for the next day with the Harris County DA. The gravy train had come to a screeching halt. It was time to cut and run. Next, Russell tries to outrun Johnny Law once again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. In April 1996, 38-year-old Stephen Russell's boss had just discovered that he embezzled over $800,000. Desperate to escape from the law, Russell raced home, called his boyfriend Philip Morris, and confessed that their extravagant life had been funded with ill-gotten gains. 
It strains credibility to think Morris believed Russell bought the house and cars and jewelry and jet skis with just his CFO salary. But to this day, both Morris and Russell insist that he was completely unaware of his boyfriend's embezzlement scheme. The way they tell it, Morris was furious when he found out, and he wanted to abandon Russell before the police came after him too. This was Russell's worst fear. Even the prospect of going back to prison paled in comparison to losing the love of his life. He pushed his sporty Mercedes to the limit, trying to get home before Morris left. But even with his relationship hanging in the balance, Russell took care to stop at several ATMs on the way, withdrawing about $40,000 in cash. By the time Russell arrived at their house, Morris was gone. Russell spent hours calling Morris's friends and eventually lured his boyfriend to meet him at his sister's place. There, Russell tried to give Morris a briefcase containing $40,000 cash, but Morris refused. He wanted nothing to do with it. Finally, Morris's sister agreed to take the money to Russell's ex-wife Debbie in Virginia. Russell and Debbie had remained friends after their divorce, and she had helped him out of a few jams before, but she didn't want to risk being implicated in one of his schemes. Unbeknownst to Russell, Debbie turned the money into her lawyer, who in turn handed it over to Texas law enforcement. In due course, the Harris County DA launched an investigation into the $800,000 that Russell swindled from Nam. Based on his past escapades, the authorities knew that he would probably go on the run and that he might call in to check on the investigation. A series of suspicious phone calls to several Harris County offices confirmed the theory. Knowing that Russell was tracking his own case, the DA filed a secret pocket warrant for Russell's arrest. The warrant was signed by a judge, but not filed in the clerk's office. This way, Russell didn't have a heads up that the cops were coming after him. On May 23, 1996, just 10 days after Russell fled from Nam, he stopped by his house to pick up a few things. Unfortunately for him, he was walking into a trap. Investigators arrested him before he ever made it inside. For the third time in four years, Russell found himself locked up in Harris County Jail. Both he and his boyfriend, Philip Morris, were charged with felony theft. Morris was released after his friends posted his $40,000 bond. Russell, on the other hand, was a flight risk and had a much higher bond of $900,000. By this point, Russell was intimately familiar with the ins and outs of the bail process in Harris County. He planned to use this knowledge to get his sky-high bond lowered to something more reasonable. From his cell, Russell drew a mock-up of a court order which lowered his bond to a manageable $45,000. He then mailed it to a friend who typed up an official-looking version and sent it back. Then came the tricky bit. Russell had to get a clerk to enter his counterfeit court order into the Harris County system. On the day of his July 12th bail hearing, Russell smuggled his homemade get-out-of-jail card in his jumpsuit. As sheriff's deputies escorted him and a dozen other prisoners to the courthouse, 
Russell saw a woman walking by, carrying a stack of files. Jackpot. Russell waited until the woman had walked a distance away before he slipped his homemade bond reduction out of his jumpsuit and let it fall to the floor. Then he told a deputy that the woman had dropped it. The deputy picked up the official-looking document and said he would take it to the clerk's office himself, which was exactly what Russell was hoping for. Russell's bond hearing did not go well, but that was immaterial. With a hard copy of his phony bail reduction in the system, Russell only had to get the computer records to match. Russell needed to get in touch with the district clerk's office, but he knew they would probably look askance at a call coming from inside the jail. Russell avoided this complication by first calling a friend in Florida and then having the friend conference him in with the clerk. Once Russell was connected, he impersonated a judge and asked the clerk to lower his bond. Here, Russell took advantage of a well-documented psychological phenomenon. People are highly likely to comply with a request when it comes from an authority figure, like a doctor, police officer, or judge. A 1966 study by psychologists Hoffling, Brotsman, Dalrymple, Graves and Price demonstrated this to startling effect. They found that when a stranger claiming to be a doctor called nurses over the phone and asked them to administer an excessive dose of an unknown drug to a patient, 21 out of 22 nurses agreed to do so. Since this kind of misguided compliance can happen in a situation with life and death stakes, it's no wonder that the clerk complied with a request she believed was coming from a judge. Once Russell convinced the clerk to lower his bail, the only thing left was to get a bondsman. This time, Russell masqueraded as his own lawyer, Roger Bridgewater. Under this guise, Russell called a local bonding company and said that he was trying to get his client bonded out before the weekend. Russell, as Bridgewater, promised to pay the bond first thing on Monday. Within two hours, Russell was free. As soon as he was out, Russell headed straight for his and Morris's home and shared the good news that he'd made bail. He left out the measures he'd taken to have it lowered. Russell knew he didn't have much time before the Harrison County clerk discovered his ruse. He wanted to make a break for it, but his heart wouldn't let him leave Morris behind. So, Russell asked Morris to come with him, but Morris flat out refused to run off with Russell. He wanted to take his chances going through the proper legal channels. Given more time, Russell probably could have persuaded Morris to join him, but he didn't have that luxury. So he got creative. Reaching back into his bag of telephonic tricks, Russell called the district clerk, this time pretending to be a sheriff's deputy. He enlisted the clerk in a dubious prank, asking her to confirm that a warrant had been issued for Philip Morris's arrest. Using every ounce of his conspiratorial charm, Russell convinced her to follow his lead. The clerk agreed, and when Russell called back with Morris on the line, she played her part perfectly, regurgitating the lie Russell had fed her. Genuinely terrified by the prospect of going back to jail, Morris agreed to go on the run with Russell. 
They planned to go underground in Florida for a while, and for that, they needed cash. The couple scraped together about $7,000 between them, but that wasn't enough for Russell. He desperately wanted to recover the $40,000 he'd sent to his ex-wife Debbie for safekeeping. Unfortunately for Russell, when he called her to ask her to wire the money, Debbie told him she'd handed it over to the police. And even worse, the authorities had tapped her phone, knowing Russell might reach out to her. Russell and Morris planned to meet up in Fort Lauderdale, thinking it would be safer to travel separately. Russell was lying low in a Florida motel when he heard someone bang on his door and yell, Fire! Russell knew this was an old cop trick. He was caught. Thinking fast, he called a friend to get word to Morris. Then, resigned to his fate, he opened the door and surrendered to the authorities. He was arrested and taken right back to the Harris County Jail. Russell had already escaped from that facility twice, so the guards didn't take any chances. They put Russell in arm and leg shackles whenever he was moved from his cell and made sure he was never allowed to use the phones without supervision. This time, Russell stayed put. In August of 1996, 38-year-old Russell pled guilty to felony theft charges for embezzling $800,000 from NAM. He was sentenced to 45 years and the system transferred him to Huntsville Prison to begin serving his time. Deputies cautioned the guards that Russell was slippery, but their warnings went unheeded. The Huntsville guards didn't realize they were dealing with con artist royalty. As soon as Russell arrived at the Estelle unit of the prison in October, he began planning how he would walk out the front door. From his prior jailbreak experience, he knew he'd need a disguise, ideally one that he could keep in his cell without drawing attention from potential snitches. Russell faked some eye trouble to get himself into the prison medical facility. From there, he stole a medical pass and used it to walk around freely doing recon. Russell quickly noticed a few weaknesses that he could exploit. First, the guard who worked the graveyard shift at the front door security checkpoint was lazy and inexperienced. And second, inmates in the infirmary wore white uniforms that vaguely resembled the green scrubs that doctors wore. Just like that, Russell knew how he was getting out. He bribed an inmate who worked in the jail to steal him one of the white infirmary outfits, claiming he wanted to wear them as pajamas. Then he bought green magic markers off of fellow inmates, a few at a time. Russell experimented with placing the markers in a sink full of water and soaking scraps of fabric inside until he had perfected a method for dyeing clothes. Russell was ready to make his move. He planned his breakout for Friday, December 13th. Early that morning, Russell went into a restroom and changed into his green scrubs. As he walked out, he ran right into an inmate who knew him. Russell stood there in his disguise with bated breath, certain that he was about to get ratted out. But instead, the inmate just wished him luck. There was honor among thieves. 
After this close call, Russell quickly beat a hasty retreat to the checkpoint that he had scouted before. As he hoped, the lazy guard was taking a break, leaving her station vacant. Russell walked right by and kept walking until he reached the prison's outer gate. Russell tried his best to appear calm as he waited for the guard to open the gate. When the guard commented that Russell's scrubs looked a little like prison whites, Russell played it off with a joke. Well, don't shoot me. The guard laughed and let Russell through. He had done it again. Russell walked away from the prison and through the woods until he came to a house. Turning on his trademark charm, Russell convinced the man inside that he was a doctor and that he'd gotten into a car accident. He asked for a ride into town and the man obliged. Then Russell spun the same yarn and got a taxi to drive him 75 miles to Houston. From there, Russell hit up his ex-wife and Helen Kempel, the mother of his old flame James. They each wired him $250, which he used to buy himself new clothes. As soon as he was presentable, he headed straight back to Philip Morris. Once they were reunited, Russell and Morris resumed their earlier plan to run away to Florida. They had a friend drive them across the border into Louisiana, where they spent the night. But the next morning brought a new complication. While picking up breakfast, Russell caught sight of his mugshot staring back at him next to an article about his latest escape. Russell quickly tossed all the copies of the paper in a dumpster, but he knew it wouldn't be enough. He and Morris had to disappear, and fast. They decided against going to Florida since Russell had already been arrested there twice. Instead, Morris suggested they hide out in Biloxi, Mississippi, a transient sort of town where they could blend in with the crowd. Russell and Morris laid low in a Biloxi hotel while they figured out their next move. Russell studied classified ads from papers all across the country and decided that the best prospects were in Philadelphia. He walked to a payphone and called up Helen Kempel, who now lived in Pennsylvania, to let her know that he'd be in the area. But while they were talking, Helen said that she heard another man's voice on the line. Russell suspected that someone had tapped her phone. He raced back to the hotel where he and Morris were staying, but when he was still a few blocks away, he crossed paths with a US Marshal and three police officers who were looking for him. Russell was arrested on the spot, while Morris was apprehended at their hotel. Two hours later, they found themselves side by side, handcuffed to a bench in a Biloxi jail, waiting to be transported back to Texas. Coming up next, Russell heads back to prison, more determined than ever to escape. Now, back to the story. After a brief stint on the lam, master con artist 38-year-old Stephen Russell and his boyfriend Philip Morris had been re-arrested. They were sent back to Texas to serve time for embezzling nearly a million dollars from the medical management company. Russell had 45 years to serve for felony theft, and Morris was serving 20 years for his own part in the racket. Russell was transferred from prison to prison to deter any further escape attempts. 
but he was desperate to reunite with Morris on the outside as soon as possible. They wrote letters to each other, but Russell longed for them to be together in the flesh. So, in December 1996, he began preparing for his most involved escape attempt ever. Russell carefully researched Special Needs Parole, a Texas program that allowed for the release of terminally ill inmates. He starved himself for 10 months, forcing his body to waste away to imitate the symptoms of AIDS. Russell had pulled a scheme like this two years prior, but this time he would take it all the way to the end. As part of his plan, he also created fake health records on the prison library typewriter and dropped them in the prison's internal mail system to be added to his medical file. Every few months, correctional officers transferred him to different prisons, hoping to thwart any further escapes. But this actually worked to Russell's benefit. Each time he was moved, he asked inmates working in the infirmary to update his charts with more dire test results. By the end of 1997, his condition appeared so dire that a prison doctor, Mohammed Amir, requested special needs parole on Russell's behalf. Incredibly, Dr. Amir took this step without running a single test on Russell himself. The doctor's glaring oversight might be partially explained by a phenomenon called truth bias. A 1994 paper by psychologists Michael Burgoon, Mark Callister, and Frank Hunsacker asserted that the unique attributes of the medical context may contribute to physicians developing a truth bias regarding information disclosed to them by their patients. Essentially, Doctors tend to assume their patients are telling the truth when they report symptoms and ailments. This ensures that patients get the care they need, though it can mean a few malingerers like Russell slip through the cracks. This bias certainly worked in Russell's favor. In addition to requesting Russell be released from prison under special needs parole, Dr. Amir also petitioned the court to dismiss Russell's indictment for his 1996 prison escape on account of how close his patient was to death. In March 1998, 40-year-old Russell checked in to Restful Acres Care Center, a nursing home where the state of Texas sent terminally ill inmates to die. Most people who entered the facility didn't leave alive, but Stephen Russell was not most people. Using the nursing home's phones, he quickly set up an answering service in the name of a Dr. Rios. He then called Restful Acres as Dr. Rios and asked to enroll himself in an experimental AIDS trial in Houston. This was, of course, made up. Russell was released from Restful Acres on March 13, 1998, which was not only a Friday the 13th, but also happened to be Philip Morris's 39th birthday. He had a cab take him to a dealership where he bought a car. He then drove straight to Houston where Philip Morris was serving his time. But Russell had a few loose ends to tie up before he could go see his boyfriend. He stopped at an office supply store where he bought a copy of the Harris County Seal and a set of surgical scrubs. Then, posing as a doctor, he got some blank death certificates from a funeral home. A few days later, 
Restful Acres received the sad news that Stephen Russell had passed away, complete with official documentation. Russell had to die so that his relationship with Philip Morris could live. As soon as he could, Russell called Morris in prison. He pretended to be a lawyer and with his attorney-client privilege, he secretly informed Morris that he faked his death. He promised to see Morris soon. Now that he had gotten himself out of prison, his top priority was freeing Morris. Russell believed that a high-powered attorney could get Morris acquitted on appeal. To get his hands on the kind of money he needed for Morris's legal defense, Russell fell back on his old habits of identity theft and bank fraud. This time, his target was Art Sandler, the man who had bought out his family's produce business 15 years earlier. Russell knew Sandler was wealthy, which made him the perfect mark. After getting a copy of Sandler's birth certificate, Russell flew to Oklahoma to get a driver's license in Sandler's name. He chose Oklahoma because, at that time, the state didn't require fingerprints or check the national database to see if other licenses had already been issued. With his new ID in hand, Russell flew right back to Houston and tried to call Morris again. But he received some bad news. Morris had been transferred to a Dallas jail to testify in the trial of a former lover. Morris's questionable dating habits aside, this created a new wrinkle in Russell's plan. He had found an attorney to take on Morris's appeal for $25,000, but now the lawyer wanted $50,000, $25,000 for the appeal and $25,000 to handle Morris's Dallas appearance. As Russell scrambled to come up with more money, he was desperate to see Morris in person. Once again, he decided to masquerade as a lawyer so they could have unlimited visitation. He called up the Texas Bar Association and pretended to be Gene Lewis, an actual attorney. Russell said he'd lost his bar card and needed a replacement immediately. He didn't even wait for them to send the card. He flew to Austin to pick it up, then on to Dallas to visit Morris. After more than a year apart, Morris was a sight for sore eyes. Russell could barely stand the plexiglass that kept them apart and offered to help spring Morris on early parole, by which he meant escape. But Morris refused. He'd had enough brushes with the law to last a lifetime and wanted to get out the legal way. To that end, Russell headed straight to a bank to take out a $75,000 loan in Art Sandler's name. But perhaps some of Russell's desperation peaked through his usually cool facade because the banker got a feeling that something was off. They alerted security, who in turn called the FBI. Before the federal agent could arrive, Russell claimed he had chest pains and an ambulance was called to take him to the ER. After making a miraculous recovery, Russell tried to leave the hospital, but police officers stopped him. They took his wallet, but didn't think to take his cell phone. Once Russell was alone in his hospital room, he called into the local FBI dispatch, pretended to be a special agent, and cancelled his own investigative detention. After this close call, 
Russell was anxious to get out of Dallas and head for Florida, where he knew he could lay low. But before he left, Russell put in a call to the FBI to check on their investigation into him. He was relieved to find out that the agent assigned to his case was out for a long weekend. He thought he had a little time to maneuver. Unfortunately, the Texas bar had also launched their own investigation. The stunt that he pulled to get a bar card in Gene Lewis's name raised suspicion that he might be an imposter. So the bar sent Russell's photo to law enforcement officers across the state. One of these officers, Terry Cobbs, recognized Russell. A year prior, he had personally returned Russell to Texas after his escape to Biloxi. Cobbs was shocked to see that not only was Russell somehow back at large, but that he had also faked his own death. As a matter of professional pride, Officer Cobbs was determined to put Russell back behind bars. After analyzing Morris's phone records from the jail, he suspected that Russell might be hiding out in Florida. He contacted Special Agent Richard Dees and let him know that he might have a fugitive in his backyard. Cobbs also did some digging of his own. He read everything he could get his hands on about Russell and found a newspaper article that mentioned Russell's previous dealings with viatical companies. On a hunch, Cobbs called a few Florida viaticals and got a hit from someone who had recently spoken to Russell. He knew he was getting close to nabbing Russell once and for all. Meanwhile, Agent Dees had worked from Cobbs's tip and narrowed his search to the very apartment complex where Russell was staying. When Russell went out that evening, he felt a 9mm pistol pressed against his head. Russell had a long run from Virginia to Texas to California and as far as Mexico City. But it all came to an end in Florida, outside a set of pink stucco buildings. Russell was returned to Texas in April of 1998. A special prosecutor immediately refiled charges for his 1996 escape. In August of 2000, it took a jury all of 30 minutes to find him guilty. He was sentenced under the state's habitual criminal statute, which called for a life sentence for three-time felons. He received 99 years for his escape, in addition to 45 years for embezzling nearly $1 million from North American medical management. Russell and Morris are no longer in touch but neither of them has ruled out the possibility of a reunion once Russell has served his time. He will become eligible for parole in December 2020, at 63 years old. For his part, Russell claims he is not planning any more escapes. Certainly, a breakout would be complicated with his current living conditions. Russell spends 23 hours each day in solitary confinement, locked up in a 6 by 7 foot cell. He is strip-searched when he's allowed out to take his daily shower. Twice a week, he's moved to a new cell and guards search all of his belongings. The state of Texas may have stripped Stephen Russell of his liberty and the luxurious lifestyle he once led, but they'll never be able to take away the title that he earned. The King 
of Khan. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Stephen Russell, amongst the many sources we used, we found Steve McVicker's book, I Love You, Philip Morris, a true story of life, love, and prison breaks, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Noni Okwalagu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.